Welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode number 23. I'm one of your hosts, Kip Clark. And I am Hector Marrero. And today we're going to be talking about the concept of friendliness, which we will get into later. I am actually drawing on some anthropological data, so I'm going to define it in an anthropological context. So to begin the episode, I'm actually going to read from some of my texts from my anthropology class, and Hector and I will discuss friendliness as it relates to the readings and some of our experiences. So first from Michael Moffat's study of Rutgers in 1989. Michael Moffat was a professor of anthropology at Rutgers, and he conducted the study in 1989. He conducted over 200 interviews, and he actually pretended to be a student for a year. He lived in the dorm, took classes, and ate with students. This brings up some issues of informed consent, but that's not what we're focusing on in this podcast. But you are more than welcome to look up Michael Moffat. He wrote a very interesting study of these students, which I'm going to be reading from now. So he begins this passage by saying, Rutgers undergraduates did not ignore the real world in conceptualizing the self, however. They simply saw it as a different place, requiring a different, more artificial social self. The true self had to disguise itself in the wider world, they believed. It had to wear masks. It had to play roles. It had to manipulate other people. Personal development of the sort that most students expected to accomplish in college was thus a complicated business. A well-socialized current American adult was neither inner-directed nor other-directed. She or he was both. Therefore, you had to come to know or to construct your real personal identity as you came of age. At the same time, you had to polish the practical skills of masking the same true self in the public world. You had to refine your ability to influence others if you wanted to get ahead in life. Much of what the students did among themselves in the dorms, especially in the long talk sessions held in undergraduate cynical, see chapter 3, was related to the less authentic aspects of their social selves, joking, play, and ad hoc performances that taught them how to hustle and how to quote-unquote operate when necessary. Other parts of the modern American college life, however, especially at more private levels with good friends and sometimes with lovers, had to do with the authentic real self as the students thought of it in the 1980s. And friendship as a relationship was about the self in the most fundamental way. Friendship had been the core relationship in undergraduate culture for two centuries. Since the mid-19th century, the intensities of college friendships in particular had been celebrated in American culture, In the mid-1980s, the movie The Big Chill was their most recent sentimentalization. With your college friends, middle-class Americans believed you left childhood behind. You became a young adult. When you graduated from college, you might never have the time or opportunity for so many real friendships again. I noticed the centrality of friendship from my first days in the Rutgers dorms in the late 1970s, and, occasionally, the students' anticipatory nostalgia for their college friendships while they were still in the midst of them. Though many incoming students had hometown friends at Rutgers, almost all of them believed that they would not benefit from higher education unless they also made new friends in college, and most of them did so very quickly. After a month at Rutgers, the average freshman already considered half a dozen new college acquaintances to be friends or close friends. 
Within two months, the average dorm resident named almost one-third of the other 60 residents on his or her dorm floor as friends or as close friends. In one longitudinal sample, freshmen and sophomores indicated that almost half of their five best friends in the world were friends that they had made since they had come to college. The percentage of best college friends then rose to about three in five for juniors and seniors and most seniors believed that they would stay in touch with their best college friends for years to come after graduation. If anything, friendship was even more central in undergraduate culture in the 1980s than it had been in the past, for it was the only culturally unproblematic tie with another human being that still existed in the late 20th century, given the fundamental assumptions of current American individualism strictly construed. All other social connections, the relationships of work, family, class, race, and ethnicity, were imposed on your true self from without. You did not choose what family you were born into, who you worked with, etc. Even love and sexual lust often chose you rather than you choosing them. Your friends, on the other hand, were freely chosen, mutually chosen, egalitarian others whom you trusted with the secrets of your true self. A true friend was, definitionally, someone who was close to your true self. Friendship was, in fact, simply the social side of the late 20th century American individualistic self, which naturally desired to relate to freely chosen others. Friendship as the students thought of it actually has its own dilemmas and uncertainties, however. Since it was about the true self, a definitionally inward entity, its ultimate proofs were entirely invisible. No external actions or rituals could constitute it. You and I are true friends if and only if both of us consider the other to be a true friend in our hearts. And I am never entirely certain about what you really feel in your heart. The students therefore spend endless amounts of time discussing and thinking about the sincerity and authenticity of their own friendships and of those of other people whom they know well. Between the two spheres into which students, like their elders, divided life, the private world of the true self and the real world of the manipulative social self, lay a third behavior and value, perhaps the central mediating value in American daily life in the 1980s. It is one that is so taken for granted by most Americans that it is virtually invisible as cultural behavior, and it is virtually undescribed in analyses of contemporary American culture. It is the late 20th century American social value of friendliness. And I pause here in the reading. This is the key concept, and I apologize for the long preface, but this is the main thing that I want to focus on. In the assumptions of most Americans, the contemporary self is neither self-contained nor elusive in its affiliations. It is, or it should be, potentially open to other selves in its most authentic form. If you are a good, normal American human being in the 1980s, you should be ready, under certain unstated circumstances, to extend friendship to any other human being regardless of the artificial distinctions that divide people in the real world. To be otherwise is to be something other than a properly egalitarian American. It is to be snobbish. It is to think you are better than other people. Americans know perfectly well that they cannot actually be friends with everyone, but in many daily contexts, most of them still feel obliged to act as if they might be, to act friendly. To act friendly is to give regular, abbreviated performances of the standard behavior of real friendship. To look pleased and happy when you meet someone. To put on the all-American friendly smile. To acknowledge the person you are meeting by name, preferably by the first name, shortened version, to make casual body contact, to greet the person with one or two or three conventional queries about the state of their whole self. How are you? How's it going? What's new? The knowledge that friendly is often social etiquette, that it does not always mean that the person who is acting friendly wants or expects to be friends, can be a subtle matter. 
Foreigners, especially from closely related Western European cultures in which similar behavior is often produced under more genuinely intimate circumstances, have learned to distinguish American friendliness from real friendship before they can function smoothly in the United States. Well-raised Americans, on the other hand, usually understand the distinction without thinking about it consciously. They know that the correct response to a friendly how are you is fine or not bad. Only with a true friend do you perhaps sit down and talk for half an hour about how you are actually feeling at the moment. They know what five of my sophomore friends from Hasbrook Fourth knew when, in 1985, I introduced them to the president of Rutgers University, an official so lofty that most Rutgers faculty members had never met him. And I will end my reading there so as not to get too dry. I don't want to bore you guys to tears. Um, to explain the following anecdote, basically the professor, in this case disguised as a student, introduces the other students to the president of the university who invites these guys over for a meal sometime or to come chat. And the students immediately identify that he doesn't actually want them to come visit, that it's just a friendly saying. And so I'm going to pause there. We will at a later point get to another reading that I have, and maybe you can even read it if you'd like. But to ask you, as I've now been talking for a bit, what some of your thoughts are, what some of your reactions might be to that absolute wall of text, and I apologize for how long it took. <laughs> it's fine. No, there is a couple of things that stuck out to me. I've been thinking recently about political correctness. And it's almost as if friendliness, you know, since the 1980s has become so much a part of American culture that people are disingenuous, are just completely uninterested in what you're saying and reveal that disinterest without even batting an eye because they see the behavior as friendly and therefore as socially acceptable. And I'm sure I've done this myself. What I think is a little disturbing about this friendliness is that I've noticed that there is associated with that not listening or, you know, people not listening to you and just taking the words that you say and then just throwing out a positive remark. So, Kip, do you think that there is some sort of connection towards what I'm talking about, political correctness and this friendliness that he talks about being with these um, kids in that the masked self um, who is overly friendly has become overly prominent and almost completely eclipsed the true self and maybe there are people who aren't don't even have a true self anymore yeah that's case no it's a very interesting idea and point and i think it's a valid one i recall from another reading that i wasn't torturous enough to bring in that a woman gave a similar study to mr moffat here and she spent a lot of time talking to international students who made similar observations that I read out loud towards the end of this reading about how people who are not from America have to adjust a little bit when they see American quote-unquote friendliness. And a lot of these international students, and this is recently from 2001-2002 when that study was conducted, made very sad remarks about how a student would ask how they were doing and they'd give an honest answer about how they weren't doing too well, they were behind on sleep or stressed out. And this American student continued talking through their answer. It was a reflex to say, how are you? You wait for a response, and then you immediately start talking. It's not listening, like you said. It's not genuine politeness, and it's troubling because the question implies that you do care how the other person is doing. So I think there is an air of political correctness to it that it's just seen as polite. But I would argue it's almost rude because in the times when we don't mean it, it's very, very disingenuous. Yeah, maybe not rude so much as mechanical, uh, so uh, deeply 
built into our circuitry as humans, our mental circuitry, that we say these disingenuous things without batting an eye. And I think there's something to be said, too, about how this is a very particular um, feeling, at least that Mr. Moffat talks about in this study in the 1980s, that there was this feeling of camaraderie that you would have with your college um, friends that you felt free to make, that you were making these friends on your own um, through your own personality. Um, and that it seems as socially acceptable because of these films like The Big Chill and I'm sure Animal House also played a role into that. I think another uh, phrase that really uh, struck me in this uh, passage that you read was that of early nostalgia or premature nostalgia. I think anticipatory nostalgia anticipatory is how it's phrased, nostalgia. something like that, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that phrase or you know the, that set of words, like that hits it right on the nose in that we're already missing these relationships that we have before they're even over. And so on the subject of anticipatory nostalgia, I think that still exists today. Um, I know that I've felt it myself. There is this connection that I have with my friends where I think in my head, almost like a collector, I tell myself, I'm going to be friends with these people forever. We're going to do things together in the future, after college. Maybe we'll live with one another. But they are premature and they are youthful in that they are not necessarily true and, and dreamy. Um, do you, have you ever had any experience with anticipatory nostalgia, missing a friend before even getting to know this person? Yeah, definitely. I think especially in freshman year, and I know we've talked at length about it already, but meeting so many new people at once, many of whom I haven't remained in touch with because it's just sort of the way it goes, but sort of making plans, saying, oh yeah, no, we're friends now. We'll probably spend a w- summer together at some point, or we'll go on these trips, or maybe after we graduate, we might live together. But you really can't do too much in anticipation because so much changes in the course of a college career. And yeah, I think it's it's natural to sort of anticipate because you want to think that in the long run you will have a future with these people. But yeah, I mean, I think the friendliness that Mr. Moffat describes and of course other people are aware of just draws these processes out. It makes discerning the truth a lot harder. I wish in every conversation I had with people I knew who really meant it when they asked, how are you? and who, frankly, was just being polite because it becomes a waste of time. I don't I don't have the energy or the desire, really, to do that song and dance of, you know, the small talk, frankly, and I know there are a lot of people out there who think it's important and who value it, and I respect that perspective, but personally I don't, I guess, have the skills to engage with small talk, and I think that whether it's PC or not, I think PC is probably a good way to describe it, but it's all, to me, inconsequential um, a series of questions and answers that really are just meant to establish the person and not the personality and I think that it's very important to consider both but how do you see the social terrain if let's say in this uh, hypothetical world everybody actually expresses their true self and doesn't hide behind a mask do you even think that's possible or do you think this mask of friendliness is Uh, a permanent fixture of American life? That's a good question. I don't know that there is a hypothetical possibility of everyone being real, um, because I think on some level, as cynical as it might sound, we would all recognize that we've got bad qualities, that, 
you know, we're not all great. Some of us have terrible, terrible traits that we do want to disguise. And I think that's why people do what they do. But I've had so many conversations with people where they're so crestfallen about the flaws in someone else that they've discovered. And I think that one of them is honesty or lack thereof. And I think that if we just knew that from the beginning, we wouldn't be so disappointed when we find that out about people. If someone said in their first conversation with you, if someone said in their first conversation with you, hey, you know what? I'm not a very honest person. I will lie in order to get what I want or to to try and please you for, you know, social gain or so that we seem like friends. I think we'd all be a little bit less offended about it in the long run because we wouldn't spend weeks or even months trying to get to know that person. And I think that that would be in some ways an easier world, not in the same way as currently, but I think it would feel more genuine. And I think that's my response. Yeah, I also think that there is a frustrating, vicious circle that goes on um, in, you know, you're talking about crestfallen people. You know, you can't tell that to anyone. You can't tell just anyone that you're crestfallen. You're going to tell the people that you are, let's, let's call it real with, that you trust and that you can show your true face to. But... I'm sure it could be extremely frustrating to go back to that person that you realize isn't honest and still have to be, you know, friendly to them, to not know any other way of interacting with them. I I personally have had moments where I find myself frustrated with somebody and for whatever reason, it's impossible to tell them why I find them frustrating um, because, you know, they won't listen because it isn't the friendly demeanor that they're used to. And I think in the similar vein, I think I do the same thing. And I think perhaps something that can be connected to this friendliness um, is a desire to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And I think people really are addicted to not hearing bad things about themselves. Or rather, I think they're addicted to hearing pleasant things. And it's just become a social norm. It's just become ingrained in our behavior to just be absolutely friendly and never critical. And I think it's dangerous. I think it's somewhat dangerous. I agree. I agree. So I'm actually going to ask you to read a passage. It's a very brief passage, so people don't need to get too fed up. (laughs) And just to explain to the listeners what Hector's going to be reading, it is from another study by Murray Milner Jr. It's called Freaks, Geeks, and Cool Kids, American Teenagers, Schools, and the Culture of Consumption. So this is actually by a sociologist, and he did a study of high school students, lots of interviews, and some of his ideas about how they worked. And so Hector's going to read from a passage called Instrumental and Expressive Relationships, which relates to what some which relates to some of what we are talking about. Instrumental relationships are formed for some specific purpose or goal. Expressive relations are those that have no specific purpose but focus on companionship. Strictly instrumental relationships usually limit or restrict emotional intimacy. Judges should not try cases that involve friends or family members. Teachers should not have romantic relationships with their students. Expressive relationships, on the other hand, necessarily involve emotional intimacy and attachments. So I think that that's an important passage because... It relates to what you talked about, about people seeking pleasure. And I think that often we would like for some of our relationships to be both instrumental and expressive. We want them to fulfill a certain role, but at the same time we want certain emotional intimacy. And I think that's the danger, that you can't always have both. And that 
it's okay perhaps to recognize that there are certain people that we use for lack of a better word and that I think we don't want to believe that about ourselves because we don't want to seem morally wrong but you know when you make connections or network for a job you are using that person for what they can provide to you and I think that they recognize that and we as potential employees recognize that when we interview or have conversations and meetings and on the other side there are people with whom you know we share our deepest feelings and I think the danger is when those boundaries cross. And so I know maybe it's taking the conversation in a slightly different skew, but what do you think about those two concepts that you just described? Well, you mentioned going to, uh, what is it, networking events, and you're clearly showing a side of yourself that isn't your true self. It's kind of your working self, and it's understandable that you're going to be cordial but not real, or rather you're not going to show your real emotion, you're not going to show your real face. I think, and this might be just hopeful thinking, that there is a drive um, towards getting to know the real person to realizing or more people realizing that the connections that we make are somewhat hollow, somewhat superficial, especially when it comes to jobs. And I think there might be a surge by businesses and schools even to really get to know the person and not to... Uh, reach out to that false self but to reach out to the real self and I this seems kind of like a vague concept it's almost hard it's quite hard to articulate but I don't know if you see where I'm coming from or if you agree but I guess in an optimistic point of view more people would be more open um, with their true masks and not show this emotional facade and perhaps it, it's a generational thing. Perhaps it will be an era where people are so used to this facade that they want to, they have a desire to show their true self. Um, but then again, thinking about uh, social media platforms such as Facebook and Instagram, where people so cu- clearly curate a life for themselves that isn't uh, really their life at all. Um, perhaps that's not the case. And perhaps we are sinking deeper and deeper into this world where we are all just wearing masks unashamedly. Right, I agree completely, and it's certainly very complex, and there's a lot of masking that goes on, but I do think at the end of the day, it takes so much energy to to keep up a facade and to create a self that you are willing to share with other people, and I talk to plenty of people about things like this, and I always respond by saying that it's difficult to trust people, that you can't just share whatever you want with whomever you want, and I understand that, but I also think that over time people or I hope rather that over time people will become more open or feel more willing to share and that maybe we won't have as many instrumental relationships that more of our relationships will be expressive because I think in a true expressive relationship friendliness sort of goes away that you know like Mr. Moffat talks about you have conversations that are half hours long where you discuss how you're really doing and people find out how you really are and I hope that that's what we're progressing towards perhaps not um But I think there will always be people that hope that it exists because I think it is a very important way in which we navigate social interactions through honesty. And obviously there's times to be honest and other times not. But those are some of our thoughts. We want to know what you guys think. Um, As always, we want this to be a conversation among and not a conversation between. So please reach out to us, give us some input, leave anonymous comments on our website or a review on iTunes, which is also highly appreciated. And any other social media outlets that you want to 
use to contact us, we also encourage. And Hector, if people do want to reach us on social media, how can they go about doing so? You can reach us on Twitter at Stride and Saunter. That's an N, not and. Reach us on Facebook, Stride and Saunter. Email us at strideandsaunter at gmail.com or visit our website, strideandsaunter.com. And just like any other episode, we appreciate your listening to the podcast. It means a lot to us. And of course, as always, from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Hector Marrero. Good, 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 good vibrations.